0: I want to start by inviting our children to Children's Church. Head to the back, and your teacher will meet you. And as they're heading out, let me open us in a word of prayer before we turn to the word. Lord, uh, we are grateful for your mercy to us, which we sang of so beautifully. Um, You are good to your people, and your mercy does endure forever. And for that we're grateful we'd be lost without it Uh, father i thank you for our our successful business meeting this morning the unity that we experienced the joy that we have in fellowship um, the common work that we have in the gospel and getting to share in that together is a joy so thank you for that as well Uh, lord we continue to pray for the uh, people in ridgecrest and the surrounding area who've been really affected by the uh, earthquake we pray, Lord, that um, the city and the state are helping, and Lord, would you show us where we might be able to help as well. And now, uh, Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and be with us as we turn to your word. Would you show us what it is that you have to say through your servant Moses to us today? And we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. <laughs> so we finished Acts. Um, I kind of Somebody asked me, does it feel weird starting a new book, and I said, I feel like I'm my friend has moved away or something, you know, <laughs> I don't get to spend time with Luke anymore. So uh, kind of missing that we're, we're starting. Why are we starting Exodus? I was asking a, a question this past week of how do you pick what you're going to preach? And it really flummoxed me for a minute. I went, I, I don't know, <laughs> you know, cause they have a lectionary and, and you go through this verse at this point, you know, it's set throughout the year. And as I was thinking about it, it kind of reminded me, why are we in Exodus? So remember we did Genesis and we did it in four chunks and at the end of, uh, in one of those chunks, between one of those chunks, we did Luke. And so when we finished at, uh, Genesis, I thought, you know, we've got to do Luke part two, right? We have to go and finish the story that Luke started. So we have to do Acts. So as we start drawing into the home stretch on Acts, I thought, you know, we've got to finish Genesis. We've got to do Genesis part two. And so that's why we pick up at Exodus because what we did is we left the people in Egypt with a big question mark. Do they ever make it to the promised land? And so now we go to Exodus to get the rest of that story. So that's where we're gonna go. Um, My game plan for this morning is we're gonna do an introduction to the book. And so there's a lot of the little details that we'll go through and talk about. And then we'll take a look at that that section that Steve read for us this morning. So before we even start, who wrote the book of Exodus? There's no name on it, doesn't say who it is. Um, Traditionally, that's been accepted as Moses having written it because the first five books are called the books of Moses. Uh, The Jews accepted it as Moses' writing, and Jesus himself even said it was Moses. Uh, Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, For Moses said, Honor your mother and father, quoting uh, chapter 20, and whoever reviles his mother or father must surely die, quoting chapter 21. So he, he reads from the book of Exodus, and he says, Moses said this. And likewise, in Luke chapter 20, he says, But the dead are raised. Even Moses showed this in the passage about the bush. We'll see that in chapter 2, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So if Jesus said Moses wrote it, I'm unlikely to argue with that. Although I do have a quick story. Uh, When I was in seminary, I took a a summer Hebrew class, trying to get caught back up because I failed Hebrew once. So I took this summer class, and it was a visiting professor. He wasn't on staff. Um, And he had a really good approach to how to teach Hebrew. I kind of got it. He helped me get my hands around it. And as we're in, like, I think the last class and about to finish, we were talking and he said, well, we don't know if Moses ever existed. And me and another friend of mine went, excuse me. (laughs) And I said, but Jesus believed Moses existed. And he said, well, Jesus was accommodating the people. The people believed Moses, and so Jesus spoke of Moses as if he really existed. And so he said, well, why wouldn't he exist? He said, well, we don't have any evidence outside the Bible that he ever existed or anything. And so me and my friend stood there, and I think we grilled him for about 40 minutes. And he was so mad. He was like, I don't understand why an evangelical seminary won't hire me. And I'm like, right there. That's why they won't hire you. (laughs) You're saying that Moses might not exist. What I wish I had said, it occurred to me while I was preparing this, is we know for a fact, we know beyond a doubt that Moses existed. Do you know how we know it? Because he stood there next to Elijah at the transfiguration. So did, did everybody have a delusion that this Moses guy was standing there? No, we know Moses existed, even though there's no extra biblical evidence. We'll come back to that in a little bit. And Moses wrote this. Now the, another reason that people get a little twitchy about Moses writing it is because there's places where he speaks of himself in the second person. And so how do we explain that? Well, um, Tim often speaks of himself in the second person. People do that sometimes. Another idea is it could be like in the book of Deuteronomy, it records Moses' death. Did Moses write that? Highly unlikely. Um, a later editor, maybe Joshua, picked up the pen and wrote. So it's possible that the, the text that we have in Exodus is inspired, written by Moses, and there might have been some editing after Moses' death or, or somewhere along the line. And so they may speak of Moses in the second person. Or maybe Moses is just being humble at that point. We don't know. Um, so the author is pretty firm. I, I don't think there's any reason to doubt Moses wrote this book. Um, this is, that's going to be important when we try to figure out how does this fit with Genesis? How do they go together? Uh, so there's that. When was it written? Uh, remember when we did Acts, we could kind of nail that down. It looks like he, he wrote Acts around 60, 62, 65, somewhere in that range. I've got to tell you, this is going to be a little bit more tedious to figure out when Exodus was written. And so um, we're going to do a little math. Uh, the engineers just perked up. Everybody else is, you know, like begging out. Um, If you get lost in the numbers, when it gets important, I'll call you back. So if you glaze over, if your eyes glaze over, don't worry, I'll I'll signal when we're about to come back to the important stuff. So um, how do we know when when the book was written? Well, there's historical questions, there's other things. What really comes down to it for me is we have three biblical passages that are going to help us figure out when the exodus occurred. And if we can figure out roughly when the exodus occurred, Then we can say, well, it was 40 years wandering in the wilderness, right? And then Moses died. So he probably didn't write about the Exodus before the Exodus happened. And he probably didn't write about the Exodus after he died. So we've got a 40-year window in there. Somewhere in there he wrote it. So that's the idea. So we'll look for when did the Exodus happen, and then we'll go forward from there. So three biblical sources to look at. Uh, The first one is the Book of Judges. Oh, it's not going forward. Oh, yes, it is. I have technologies. Uh, The first one is the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, there's a judge named Jephthah. And what happens is he's he is raised up as a judge of Israel because the Ammonites are going to attack. The Ammonites are really mad at him. So he sends an emissary to the Ammonites and he says, what's up? And they come back and they say, well, you guys took our property from us and we want it back. And so Jephthah then replies, and he kind of gives him the reason, why did we take that property from you? What happened? And he retells the story. In verse 26 of chapter 11, what he says is, look, you guys, after the conquest, we had lived here, settled in this land for 300 years. So it sounds like what he's saying is, to this day, it's been 300 years, and we've been settling in your land, and you haven't made a squawk. Why now? Why, are you, why, the, why the gripe now? So what we can say then is is we can figure out the exodus because if we know the end of the conquest, we can subtract about seven years. That's about how long the conquest of Canaan took. That'll tell us when they entered the promised land, we know they wandered for 40 years. So that should take us back to roughly in the neighborhood of the exodus. That makes sense? So here's what we're looking at. The time of the judges, we don't know for sure. We don't know exactly the, the ages of the judges, but it is about 1250 to 1100 BC is when the judges ruled. That's, that's kind of a ballpark figure. So if we just go with this big wide range and we subtract that 300 years that Jephthah mentioned, they've been sitting in the land for 300 years, what's the beef? We wind up with 1550 to 1400, somewhere in that range, somewhere yeah in that, in that category um, would be the end of the conquest, so we could say that's when they finally settled the land, when they declared the conquest of Canaan over. Now, to be clear, what's happening in the book of Judges is they're doing a mop-up work. There's still people in the land they need to chase out, but at Joshua's uh, end of Joshua's life, he declares the conquest over and the land settled, so that's probably when that is. So we're looking at 1550 to 1400 BC, Subtract the seven years, 1561, 1411, somewhere in that range for when the conquest started, when they first entered the promised land, subtract 40 years, and there we go. 1600 to 1450 is the range of when the Exodus might have happened. That's based on Jeff's 300 years. Um, If I lost you, that's okay. We're gonna summarize this. This one's much easier. This one won't be so confusing. There's no algebra involved. In uh, 1 Kings, when Solomon builds the temple, the narrator starts at the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 6, and he says, in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, that's when Solomon began building. Solomon got the the, uh, temple built in pretty quick time. It wasn't many years. So if we go, well, from the time Solomon did the temple, subtract 480 years, that should get us roughly to where the the uh, exodus happened, because that's how they they said it. Well, we know pretty firmly that the temple was finished in 962 BC, right around there. So subtract 480, and we wind up at 1442 BC. Okay, so we're talking 1440 time frame here. And then the last one is a little bit more complicated again, um, but hopefully not too bad. Uh, Acts chapter 13. Remember Acts chapter 13? D. it seems like it was just last week. That was Paul's first missionary journey. He and Barnabas sailed across to Cyprus. They went from one side of Cyprus to the other. They left the other end of Cyprus, went north to Turkey, and then from that port city went up to Antioch and Pisidia. And when they were in Antioch, Pisidia, that was the place where Luke decided to first record what Paul's sermon was in the synagogue. And so that was the first glimpse into what Paul had been preaching. And one of the things he says is he says, God chose our fathers, and he made the people great during their stay in Egypt. He gave them their land as an inheritance. All of this took 450 years. So I'm going to have to ask a little grace on this because there's some really fudgy numbers here. What does it mean when he says God chose our fathers? Does that mean when he first called Abraham out of Ur of Chaldeans? Does it mean when he spoke with Jacob and said, I will be with you? Um, it's not really clear. But the next thing that he says kind of pinpoints it down to this event right here. He says, made the people great during their stay in Egypt. That's what Steve read to us this morning, is the people became great during their stay in Egypt. So I'm going to say what he's talking about there when he chose our fathers and when he made them grow is roughly the time they entered Egypt is, is the idea and then the conquest, and they enter, and they settled the land. And so that was 480 years, is what Paul tells us. So let's do a little, a little math, math here. I forget where I got this number, but it looks good. It makes the math work. <laughs> Engineers are now twitching really bad. Um, no, I did get a number that said the conquest ended somewhere around 487. I don't remember where I found that. I should have looked it up again. But that's an idea of when, roughly, the, the conquest ended. So subtract 450 years from that. And we wind up with 1837 BC, is when they entered Egypt. So 1830s, they enter Egypt, they were in captivity for 400 years, so now add 400 back onto that, and we wind up with the Exodus at about 1437, if if that first number is correct. Okay, if I lost you on the math, come on back, pinch the person next to you, wake them back up, here's the summary, based on those numbers, for Judges, we get a pretty broad, pretty broad range, 1640 to 1450 BC. Kings, we get 1440. Acts, we get 1437. Are we in the ballpark here? We get pretty close, don't we? There, there's, a, there's a general idea. We're talking 1450, somewhere in that neighborhood is when the Exodus happened. Um, here's the problem with trying to figure it out. That was a long time ago. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was 3,500 years ago. That took a long time ago. So we don't need to get too upset about getting the numbers exactly right. Um, this is pretty close. And it's, isn't it surprising that three different ages in the Bible, the Judges, the Kings, and the New Testament, and they all come up with pretty much the same kind of number. That, that's, that's one of the cool things about this is we're in the ballpark of when that happened. So... Let's make that go away. What are the problems with this? Well, there are a couple of problems which we'll talk about when we do the Exodus uh, about um, some of the events in Egypt and in Israel and some some other artifacts. Here's the big problem with this. Um, There is zero evidence outside the Bible that Joseph ever lived. He was the second in command. He saved the world and there's zero extra-biblical evidence of him. There is zero extra-biblical evidence of Moses. We have no document anywhere that's got Moses' name on anything except for our scriptures. So Moses is in Egypt, and Egypt is struck with these immense plagues. It must have totaled their economy. The plague of locusts eats everything in sight. The cattle are killed. And worst of all, their firstborn die, and there's zero record of it anywhere. We have no extra biblical evidence of that. Something that cataclysmic to the biggest power in the the world at that time surely should have been recorded somewhere. We have zero record of the Exodus. A million slaves get up and walk out of the economic powerhouse of the world and there's no record of it. It must have been devastating. There must have, it must have really upset the economy. There is zero record of the loss of any portion of Egypt's army because remember when they passed through the Red Sea, Pharaoh said, go get them, and God crashed the waves in and a big chunk of their army got ruined. Chariots were expensive. They were the tanks of the day. And it's gone. And there's no record anywhere of any of it. So this is my professor, my my Hebrew professor. This is why he says, well, we can't say that that Moses ever existed is because there's no record. Doesn't it seem improbable that somebody would have written that down? Well, the answer comes again from my alma mater, (laughs) from Trinity. There's a a gentleman who teaches there, Dr. James Hoffmeyer. I didn't take a class with him, but when I took Old Testament history class, the professor referred to Dr. Hoffmeyer a number of times. He is a huge scholar on the Exodus. It is like his major focus. And so in 1998, he was interviewed for a Christianity Today article that asked, did the Exodus even happen? And so all of those, how could this not have been recorded somewhere questions, here's how he answers. He, he felt the, the importance too. He said, it should have written, been written down. What he said though is, where was it written down is the important question. And so here's what he says. I don't know of any surviving papyrus documents from the Egypt's delta. It's too wet. Papyrus is a reed-like plant, and what they do is split it open, lay it out, flatten it out, and that's what they write on. Well, it's a plant. And so when he says it's too wet, the the wet would decay a papyrus really quick. So he says, I don't know of any surviving papyrus documents from the Egypt's uh, delta. It's too wet. And papyrus is where most of the records were kept. The inscriptions that we see on statues and temple facades tend to be propagandistic, what we want you to know messages. And where papyrus records have survived, they tend to be from the desert areas. So we have very few of the day-to-day records of the 3,000 years of Egyptian history. So when people say it's a problem that we don't have any extra biblical record, of Moses or the Exodus or anything, or Joseph, it would actually be even a greater miracle if we did. Because those papyrus would have been saved in an environment where they would rot. Um, The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the desert, not in a wet area. So the fact that we have no extra-biblical record of Moses or the Exodus or Joseph is not actually arguing against it. It's what you would expect given the situation. Because remember where they settled? Do you remember from Genesis where they settled? They settled in the land called Goshen. And Goshen is all the way up north in the delta area. There's, there, the river Nile gets to, almost to the sea and then splits up and breaks into numerous things. That, that whole area is a soggy marsh. So yeah, nothing would survive there. So it's not really a problem that we don't have a record of it. So here's another problem that's a little easier or a little harder to get around. The problem is if we pin the date of the Exodus to 1440 BC, then it leaves a long period of time for the judges. Uh, The time of the judges was perhaps 300 years. Um, One of the problems with figuring it out is it wasn't like this judge rose and he judged for a while and then he went away, and then this judge rose and he judged for a while and he went away. They overlap in places. And the book of Judges is frustrating because it doesn't tell us when any of this happened. Just this guy, right? This one judged, this one judged, this one judged. But we still wind up with too much time for the time of the judges. Um, If we shrink that down and leave the time of Judges at about 300 years, then we wind up with about a hundred year gap between the end of the Judges and the beginning of the Kings. And that's too much time there. So what I'm saying is we're going to have difficulties one place or the other it's a jacket that doesn't quite fit right. Where does it not fit correctly? Folks, this took place 3,500 years ago. Do you expect us to nail down every detail in exact position that it should be? It's hard to do. Try to figure out something else that happened during the Bronze Age. We've got better support for our biblical account than we do of anything else that happened during the Bronze Age. So, there's, there's gaps, there's questions, and it's okay if we have questions. The things that God has revealed, he has revealed to you and your children, the hidden things belong to the Lord. So what he's told us, we can trust. What he's kept to himself, we just have to say, hail and amen, Lord. Um, I'm not going to be able to figure that one out. I'll ask Jesus when I get there. He'll tell me. So that's kind of the, the background of the book. Isn't it amazing that we have a book that's 3,500 years old, still applicable today, And we don't have multiple versions of Exodus. It's not like there are copies with all sorts of different endings and different stories in it. The the text of Exodus is pretty concrete. 3,500 years, and it's still concrete. You don't even get that with Virgil or any of the the Greeks or anything, for heaven's sake. To have an Iron Age document that intact is, is just a miracle. So that's the book of Exodus. Now here's the real question. What do you do with it? How do you read? How do you interpret? How do you understand the book of Exodus? What are we going to do with it? Um, Do we just read it and go, well, that's interesting history. Wasn't that something? Um, One of the commentators, uh, a guy named R. Kent Hughes, you know he's good because he's got a first initial, like if I was to go by T. James Etherington or something. Um, R. Kent Hughes, he was a pastor in Wheaton at Wheaton Uh, at uh, the College Church of Wheaton, which is right next to Wheaton campus in Illinois. Um, A prolific preacher and teacher and writer, his commentary on Exodus, I'm not kidding, is that thick. And it's it's an expositor's commentary. In other words, it's written for a preacher to use. Not all the technical details as much as how do you do that. Hughes asked that question, how do we interpret the book of Exodus? What do we do with this thing? And his answer was, the proper way to study Exodus is to pay constant attention to what the book is showing and telling us about the character of God. Exodus is an exercise in theology, which is simply the study of God. So I think that's a fair way to do it. I think that's a fair approach, but I'm going to tweak it just a little bit because I'm a preacher and I can't ever go with what somebody else had to say. So do you remember when we did Genesis? It was a while ago. When we looked at the book of Genesis, I said, this is roughly how it breaks up. It breaks up into four nice chunks. The first part, creation, fall, flood, Babel, I call it primordial history. It covers a period of thousands of years, depending on your view of creation, maybe millions of years. If you take the very first verses, the creation of the universe, perhaps billions of years in 12 chapters. So that's what I mean by narrative time, is it covers a wide area of time briefly. The next chunk, the next section is Abraham and he covers about 12 chapters happens over a period of 100 years. Abraham is primary, he's the the focus of it. Then after that, 12 chapters of Isaac and Jacob, about 105 years, and then we get to Joseph, and the narrative pace slows down. It goes by half. It takes us 50, 56, 55 years in that same time period, 12 chapters. So what I said when, when we first covered this, I said, what do you do with this? What does this mean? Well. Joseph can be the star of the end part. Isaac and Jacob, Abraham, who can be the star of the first part? There's only one person that can be the constant person who is the prime theme through that over that that many years. It has to be God. So those first chapters are primarily about who God is. Then we get to Abraham. What's Abraham about? Well, Abraham is God's covenant with his people. God covenants with Abraham and says, I will be your God and you will be my people and he makes him some tremendous promises. Well, at the end of that, Abraham dies, and then we're left with the question, now what? And so we get Isaac and Jacob, why two people in this chunk? Isaac gets really short shift. He gets a couple of chapters and he's gone, and the rest of the time is Jacob. What Moses is answering in that is, can the covenant be transmitted successfully? Can the covenant carry on when Abraham's gone? And so it's transmitted to Isaac, Yes, it can be transmitted. When it gets to Jacob, that's when the real challenge comes because Jacob is a wheeler dealer. He's going to try to finagle everything. He's going to be as as wiggly as possible, and yet God remains faithful to him. Jacob doesn't even die in 37, and suddenly the, the focus shifts to one of his sons, Joseph. So why Joseph? Well, Joseph goes into Egypt And he becomes the second in charge of all of Egypt. And he saves the world, is how he says it, because he planned for a famine. So the the way I put Genesis together, as I said, Genesis is about two things, who your God is and who you are as his people. That's the two points of Genesis. So who God is, we learn in the, the creation account, is he is the God over everything. He created it all. So when they get to Canaan, and there's a God of the hills and a God of the clouds and a God of the sea and Shemesh, the sun God, and all of this other stuff. They've been told, your God created all of that. He just said it and it happened. He didn't need a, another God to create any of that. Their gods wrestled and had fights and, and struggled with each other. Yahweh said, let there be and there was. He did it on purpose. He did it alone. He did it for his own glory. And it was all good. It was very good when he was finished. So that's the story you learn about who God is. Now you need to know who you are. Israel, you are not slaves. You didn't go into Egypt because somebody conquered you and drug you off as as the property of a, of a, a successful raid. Because of Joseph, you went into Egypt as celebrated guests. Your father, Jacob, blessed Pharaoh, and Pharaoh accepted it. Pharaoh said, live anywhere you want. Take the best of the land. That's who you are. And my theory, which I cannot defend adequately, is that Moses wrote this after the golden calf, which we'll cover in, in Exodus. And the reason is because going up to the golden calf, they're saying, oh, well, we had it better in Egypt. You know, at least we had leaks and we could sit and, you know, it wasn't that bad being a slave. Well, let's go back. And then all of a sudden Moses has gone too long and they worship a calf and they look at the calf and go, these are the gods that delivered you from Egypt. So Moses realized these people have a theological problem. They don't know who their God is and they don't know who they are. So that's why I think he wrote Genesis. Why the big introduction for Genesis? Because that sets us up for Exodus. Remember Exodus is Genesis part two. So if Moses begins by saying, introducing them to the idea of who you are and who your God is, then Exodus is saying, what's your relationship to your God? How does God relate to you? So Hughes said we should look at the book of Exodus as, as theology and understand God's character. I want to tweak it a little bit and say we understand who God is in and through us, who he is to us, how he is to his people. And so that's what Genesis is going to teach us. So this is my theoretical working outline for the book of Exodus. Three pieces. God delivers us, God and us, two people. God delivers us, chapter 1 through 15. So we start this week with this is how they wound up as slaves. By chapter 15, they are out. They have marched out of Egypt. God delivers us. God did that. The second one is God rules us, chapter 16 through 24. Now, dead center in the middle of that is chapter 20. Well, not dead center, but in the middle of that is chapter 20, which is the Ten Commandments, which is God speaking from Sinai. What flows after chapter 20 is the law. There's a lot of laws in there. So that section is God rules us. He's giving us rules. This is what it means to be my people. This is what it'll look like for you. Then after that, around chapter 25, we start into this is the tabernacle that you're going to build. And, and there's a lot of detail about how things will be made and what they'll look like and how it'll be carried and who will do what and all of that. That tabernacle is there for one purpose, so that God can dwell with his people and not destroy them. So that's, that's what I think we're learning about us, our relationship to God through the book of Exodus. God delivers us. God rules us. And God dwells with us. And I think that's tremendously good news. I think that's really good news um, for us to hear. Now... The, the other question is then how, let me make that go away, go away. Um, how do we interpret, how do we handle the book of, of Exodus as, as New Covenant believers? What are we supposed to do with it? Well, remember, this was just last week. So you can act like you remember, smile and nod. Yes, I recall that. Paul is gone into Rome and he's settled. And, and so he begins to tell his story to the Jews. He calls the Jewish leaders to him and he begins to tell his story. And so he says this in in 26, verses 22 through 23. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said. So when we look at what Moses is saying, we should anticipate Jesus Christ. We should find him in there. Paul did, Jesus himself did. Listen to this from John chapter five. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses wrote of Jesus. So as we're understanding the story of Exodus, We're gonna understand who God is with his people and the answer to that is Jesus Christ. So we will learn about Jesus through this. So consider the storyline of the book of Exodus. Uh, Now, this frustrates me because I read this during the week. I was sitting on the couch. I remember where I was sitting and I remember where it was on the page and I read this summary and I went, that's great, I wanna remember that. And I didn't write it down and it's gone. (laughs) I went through a stack of commentaries, no kidding, that high four times looking for that quote and I can't find it so I've had to replicate it myself. Here's the summary of the book of Exodus, the story. Tell me if this sounds familiar. God delivered his people from slavery and protected them from judgment because they remained under the blood of a lamb. He led them through the wilderness and daily provided for them bread from heaven. He safely delivered them to the promised land. That's your story. That's our story. That's the story of, Genesis, or of Exodus. So do you see why I'm saying we're going to find Jesus here? Because it's that same story. It's the same thing. It sounds very much like us. So here's, here's the clincher on this whole idea of this is about Jesus. Is In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, at the beginning, Paul gives an amazing recounting of the story of the Exodus in ways that, Just blow my, I can't wait till we get there so we can look at at 1 Corinthians 10 and understand it in context. But after going through all of these things that the people went through in the Exodus, at the end, he says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. The book of Exodus was written down for our instruction. It's for us. And it's not so we can go back to the wilderness in Israel and wander around for 40 years. They were written for us. the book of exodus is i 'm going to claim it for the new testament i'm just going to put that down you know it, it's a New Testament book. It was written for us isn't that amazing? So when it comes to how do you interpret the book of exodus there's a bunch of different schools of thought on how to interpret scriptures. Guys get uh, doctors of ministry, demons writing on how to understand books of the Old Testament. Um, one of the ideas is What the book means is what it meant to the original hearers. Now, where I depart from this is sometimes they put on the phrase, and nothing more. I I disagree with that. First of all, I don't know how a Bronze Age Middle Eastern person understood this. I can never know. I can get approximations, but I can't put myself in their sandals and say, I am now a Bronze Age Middle Eastern person. I therefore know what this means. It wasn't written like that. Moses wrote it, and that was what it meant to those people he wrote it to at that time. Hail and amen, no problem. You know who else wrote this book? The Holy Spirit wrote this book. And the Holy Spirit wrote this book to you. So I will start with trying to understand what did it mean in its context? Where are these places that are referred to? What are these events that are going on? But I'm going to try to take it and bring it to us too. So we have to go beyond, and then there's a caution there because some of the people who say and nothing more are fighting against this tendency called spiritualism, where now these 50 rings that hold up the sheet that go around the tabernacle represent the 50 weeks of the thing and, with the stu- and they get really wild and, and it turns into what they call a wax nose. You can shape it any shape you want, and stick it on and go. And that's spiritualizing the text. So what I want us to do is try to wrestle between those two and say, no, what we want to do is ask the question, what did it mean in its original context, and what does it show us about Jesus? And that'll help us from going overboard and coming up with all sorts of bizarre interpretations. So the good news is Moses wrote the book of Exodus for you. He wrote it for us. So let's study Exodus. Let's take a look at what he has to say. So now let's turn to the text, finally. Long introduction. If, If you've zoned out, please come back. We're going to the Bible now. Um, we had to get that stuff out of the way. So how it begins is these are the names of the sons of Israel. Actually, the very first word in Hebrew is not translated. It's not there. The very first word in Hebrew in the book of Exodus is and. It's, it's called the consecutive vav. A vav is just a, a single little stroke that's a letter And when it's tacked to the beginning of a word, it's a a vav that means and. And so when Moses writes this, he starts with and, he's expecting us to go back and hear Genesis. He wants us to see that connection. As a matter of fact, he goes on and he says, these are the names of those who came out. What he essentially does is repeat chapter 46, verses 8 through 26 and summarizes it. He gets the, the names of the tribes and he leaves the other stuff out. The words are very similar to what he says there. Moses is inviting us back into Genesis. He's drawing us back into Genesis. So that's why I said we have to understand what we understood from Genesis and bring it into Exodus. It's about God and his people again and who we are. So that's how it begins. He recounts this list of people who came in. All the descendants of Jacob um, were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. How did Joseph get into Egypt? Who is Joseph? We've got to go back to Genesis and look at that. Do you see the hooks that he's putting in there? He's drawing us back in there. But it says that everybody who came in was 70 people, including or not including Joseph's family, which was already there. So one of the questions was, well, in Numbers 1, it says that uh, two years after the exodus, they took a census. So they're wandering around the wilderness for two years. They stop, they take a census, and the number of the people was 603,550 people. So one of the critical questions is, you start with 70. How is it after 400 years you get 600,000? Well, um, numbers again, warning, going to do math. Um, 630,000 is possible in 430 years if you have a 2.15% growth rate. So if your population increases by simply 2.15%, in that many years, you wind up with that many people. Um, does that sound impossible? Is, that a, is it an unrealistic number? Well, for example, in 1983, the anth- annual growth rate of, Papua New Gu- of New Guinea, Indonesia, and Malaysia was 2.5%. So not the most advanced you know, Western world kind of numbers, but still a reasonable number. So, so it is attain- attainable. And uh, the same year, 1983, the growth rate of Central America um, it was 3.16, so a full percentage point more. So is it possible, just naturally speaking, leave out any supernatural anything, is it possible that a people could grow that rate? Yep, sure is. But what else does the Bible have to say to that? Well, according to Exodus chapter 6, when we get there, they had really long life spans, um, around 130 years. So now you have people who are living 130 years, those numbers can grow. And beyond that, God did this. This was Abraham's promise. Descendants will become as numerous as the stars, and look what happened to him. So that number is not impossible, starting with 70 people. It's, it's, it's achievable. So that's why that last verse, or uh, verse, um, verse 7, Steve read it, and I, and I was just chomping at the bit to get to this. Look at verse 7 again. Look down and, and take a peek at it. Look at the words that he uses. They were fruitful they increased greatly, they multiplied, they grew exceedingly strong, they filled the land. Couldn't one of those have answered the question? They grew exceedingly, period. Moses is saying, no, you don't understand, our people exploded because God had blessed us. So God is is pouring out his blessing on them, even while they're in captivity, even while they're under taskmasters, he is making them fruitful. Children are a gift from the Lord. And so why is it that these people would increase? Because God said so. So here's our first lesson about God. He's not even mentioned. He won't get mentioned until much later, Uh, chapter, or verse 20, I think. He doesn't get brought up until verse 20. He hasn't made an appearance yet, but we know he's there. Our first lesson about God is that he's faithful to his covenant even when his people are in Egypt. He's not restricted by geography or time. The gods of Egypt are not more powerful than he is. That's what they needed to hear then. That's what we need to hear now. Our God is faithful even if we're in America. Our God is faithful even if we're in communist China. Our God is faithful even if we're in tyrannical North Korea. He's not restricted by geography or time, and he will fulfill his covenant promise to his people. That's the message that we're getting from this. Moses uses these terms, we're fruitful, increase greatly, multiply. Those were terms from the beginning of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter one, 25 and 26. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. That's exactly what they did. It's a repetition of the covenant promise to Abraham. You will be as numerous as the stars. It's happening. Do you remember when we went through Abraham? I said, he's got two kids. How are they gonna be as numerous as the stars? At the right time, in the right place, God fulfilled his covenant promise. Your God is a covenant keeping God and he can't be restricted by anything else. That was why it was so important for us to learn he created everything because he wanted to. There's no God that can compete with him. Nothing that can stop him. When he decides to bless, blessing happens. That's how it's gonna happen. So that's our first lesson about who God is. Now the next section begins to explain. Well, that's how they were, how they grew so big. How is it that they wound up as slaves? So imagine you're one of those Hebrews wandering in the wilderness, and you, Moses has told you about this great story. You go, well, yeah. Well, why were we slaves then? What happened there? He begins to explain. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Um, there's some technical mumbo jumbo, and these people and that people. Um, there was a a, a Semitic group that had invaded Egypt and one of the pharaohs was one of their people and then eventually they were chased out and maybe that's what happened is the old group left and the new group took over and yeah, whatever. Here's the other thing that's really cool. They didn't know the story of, of Joseph even back then. They'd already lost the story of Joseph. This Pharaoh had no idea who he was. The records had already disintegrated or whatever happened to him. So it's not like we're left out in the field. We're there with Pharaoh. Pharaoh goes, who's, who's Joseph? Never heard of him. So a king, new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. People of Israel, not the people of Jacob, not the people of Joseph, the people of Israel. Israel is God's covenant name with Jacob. Jacob wrestled with him and God renamed him and that was a sign of his covenant. The people of Israel are too, number, too many for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. They weren't slaves to begin with. We'll figure out a way to enslave them. We'll do something to put them under our power. So this, this new king, who by the way, if our timeline is correct, was probably Thutmose III, is is the theory. Um, There is some question about Ramses, which we'll bring up in a little bit, but it's probably Thutmose III. And by the way, Thutmose III did do some building. And um, so what he says is, we'll deal shrewdly with them, we'll set taskmasters over them, and they will build for Pharaoh the cities of Pithom and Ramses. So it kind of fits, you know, history's lining up with us here, um, even if it doesn't in some other places. So that's exactly what happens is we're gonna trip these folks, we will, we will make them become indebted to us, and then we'll turn them into slaves and they can build all our stuff for us because we don't wanna do it. We're, we're Egyptians, we don't do that stuff. So they oppress them, and as they oppress them, what Moses says is the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. It's because God is with them even in their oppression. That's important for the Hebrews at that time to know is because they were crying out, has the Lord forgotten us? And Moses' answers, no, he hadn't forgotten you. Why do you think you multiplied so much? Now, one of the things that Pharaoh said is if, if war breaks out, they might join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. This Pharaoh had already considered them a captive people. If, if a war breaks out, they might escape. So do you see how how Moses is kind of setting us up for the conflict that's going to come? Set my people free. No. Well, it started not with that pharaoh, but with this pharaoh. They might escape the land. and So they built for them these these storehouses. These storehouses of Pithom and Ramses um, were where they would keep either food or maybe even treasure from conquered things. So you can guarantee there was a strong military presence in those cities, right? Um, You don't want raiders coming in and taking your stuff. Um, And they were... I have a map. There we go. Um, So look where they were. There's the land of Goshen, here's Ramses, and here's Pithom, right up where the Hebrews lived. So wouldn't it make sense to then enslave them because you got ready slave force right there next to them? So that's what they were building. That's what they were forced to build. Contrary to what you'll see in movies and stuff, they didn't build the pyramids. It doesn't make for as, as good a storyline. And you know, Prince of Egypt, I think it had him building the pyramids and the Sphinx and stuff. It was nothing that glamorous. It was the cities of Pithom and Ramses is what they built. So the more they were oppressed, the more they spread abroad. We're already getting a taste of what's coming. Pharaoh is terrified of them. They're getting to be too big, too many, too numerous. Pharaoh's afraid of them. And so he says, let's do this, and that'll stop it. And God says, no, it won't. You already see this conflict. In this early chapter, the conflict is beginning to brew between Yahweh and Pharaoh. And round one goes to Yahweh. God wins. They keep multiplying. They keep growing. They keep, they keep becoming more. So actually what this teaches us in the end is our first lesson about you. Remember, Israel, you weren't intended to be slaves. Pharaoh forgot God, or Pharaoh forgot that, but God didn't. He multiplied you greatly as he promised Abraham. That's you. You're not intended to be a slave. God never intended that. Something happened that enslaved you. God has now broken in to liberate you, to set you free, because of the promise to Abraham. Galatians 3.29, uh, if you are in Christ, you are Heirs, uh, children of Abraham, heirs according to promise. If you're in Christ, we are entitled to the Abrahamic promise. So that's that's who you are, and don't forget who you are. Don't let Pharaoh tell you anything else. God's already round one or one round one 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 run. He he beat him. <laughs> so then next week we're going to see round two, and we'll see what happens. And it gets worse, by the way. So that's our introduction to the book of Exodus. I can't wait. I'm getting excited. The more I dig in, the more. I think whatever book I'm preaching at the time is currently my favorite. It's the best book in the entire Bible. Um, And uh, I feel like Acts is beginning to fade a little bit. So uh, I'm looking forward to the rest of the story. And so that's where we're heading. Let's see what, uh, what the Lord has for us. Let's close in prayer. Lord, you are God over all. You are the God of the heavens and the earth. And that claim set you above every God that there was in the Middle East. Lord, you are the God of heavens and the earth. That sets you above every competing desire, every competing idol, every competing promise in this fallen and broken world. You are above all of those things. You created them for your glory. You created them on your own with your own voice. Let there be. And Lord, you made us to be your people. You chose us. You put us under the blood of a lamb to deliver us from the wrath that was to come. And now you lead us in the wilderness. And we look forward to that day when we enter that promised land. Lord, thank you for this. And thank you for Moses writing this book to us. Holy Spirit, would you help us to see and appreciate that. Apply these great truths to us on a regular basis. We ask all of this in Jesus' name for his sake and for his glory. Amen.